Well, hey, good morning. It's good to see you. All of you. It is good. And I trust that it is good to see me. Thanks for saying that. Uh, All right, so we'll be in Genesis 11 in a few minutes. Um, Got a couple announcements for you. So if you want to go ahead and start turning to Genesis 11, uh, feel free to do that. Uh, Here are the announcements. Uh, One, uh, connect cards. You know, every week we ask you to fill those out for a number of different reasons. Updating our database, making sure we know what's going on in your life and we're able to uh, have a, a way to get a hold of you and to... Um, to know what's going on in your life and a way for you to get a hold of us and, and, and vice versa. Um, but I wanted to say we're about a week or so behind on Connect Card. So if you fill one out in the last week or two, be patient. We're going to be catching up this week. Um, we uh, have a new administrator in and we're excited about that. But it's going to take a, a week or so to get everything kind of ironed out. So if you've asked something from us, don't feel bad asking for it again. If you filled out a Connect Card and we haven't got a hold of you, in other words, feel free to drop another one in so that we can, we can know how to get a hold of you and best serve you. In your worship guides, though, you're going to see something that I hope to be helpful for you. There is a, a little announcement, I think it's on the very back, that talks about um, how to stay connected in the conversation at Solid Rock. And so there's a number there you can text a few letters to. What that does is put you in the conversation of um, upcoming announcements. And so I promise not to bombard you with uh, a million texts a week, but what you'll get is just simple reminders and, um, and short announcements about things coming up, and you can unsubscribe at any time. You really can. Uh, And so I want to encourage you to stay in the loop on what's going on. We'll be sending out just reminders. And it's like, it's like Twitter. I think we're only allowed like 140 letters. So you won't be getting long uh, announcements to read, just simple reminders um, to keep you in the conversation at Solid Rock and what's going on. So I want to encourage you to do that if you haven't. Um, I'm hoping that after services, I'll go look and we'll have uh, 200 people signed up for that. So we'll know how to keep you in the loop on conversations. Uh, The last thing is uh, this week, uh, men's ministry on Wednesday. Uh, Men, if you have or haven't been to a men's ministry night, I'm going to encourage you to come. It's a great time. Uh, Starts this Wednesday night at 630 over in the kids building at the Far East End. Um, This is a great time to come together to be um, in each other's lives, but also to be in the word and in the presence of God together, to pray with one another, encourage one another. And so that's this Wednesday evening at 6.30. Um, But every Wednesday morning at 5.30 a.m., there is a men's group who meets here. The first 30 minutes is uh, coffee and just fellowship. But then at 6 o'clock, they um, they start getting in the word together. And I hear great things about what's going on. They're in the Gospel of John walking through that. So if you are able to come, want to participate in a weekly Bible study with our men, uh, that's this Wednesday morning. You can come at 5.30, you can come at 6. You can come at 6.05, I bet they'll still let you in the door. Uh, So there you go, there's some announcements for you. All right, so um, Genesis 11 is going to conclude what I'm calling the introduction to the story of the Bible, okay? So I wanna give you a couple things. One, I wanna give us a caution. When we hear the word introduction to a book, we tend to think of things that don't matter as much as the book itself. And I want you to know in no way are we saying that the first 11 chapters of the Bible are simply an introduction that, um, that help us get started with the real Bible. Um, so I don't wanna in any way put, paint the wrong picture, but I do want to share with you why I am calling it the introduction and why I believe it helps us understand the rest of the Bible, okay? So that's where I wanna start this morning. The first 11 chapters of Genesis... So therefore, the first 11 chapters of your Bible begins with genealogies mixed in with big events. 
And it's not necessarily in chronological order. It skips around a lot, okay? So that's one of the primary reasons why I call it the introduction. It's giving us all that we need to know about the rest of the story. Much of what Moses is writing about in Genesis 1 through 11 uh, won't even come into play until we get to the New Testament, some of it until we get to Revelation, okay? And so, so much about those first 11 chapters help us understand the rest of the story. But it's not necessarily in chronological order, right? So we had the creation, uh, the first seven days, and then we, chapter two backs up and goes back to day six, and it can be confusing. Then we get chapter three, chapter four, we get genealogies, and then we get the flood, a big event. Chapter 10, we get more genealogies. Then chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, big event, then more genealogies. So that's why we're calling it the introduction. It's giving us a handle on the story, so as we read it, we understand what's unfolding. Okay, so today is going to be the last uh, sermon in the introduction, then, of the Bible. Chapter 11, we'll finish that. Next week in chapter 12, we pick up with a chronological narrative that's unfolding. Okay? So um, I want to give you that to get started so that nobody is misunderstanding uh, why we're calling it that, but that we have a clear understanding of where we're we're at together. So this is what's going to happen. So Genesis begins with the generations of the heavens and earth. Then we get some creation account, events. Then we get the genealogy of Adam through Cain. We saw that last week, uh, which, which that genealogy goes down to Lamech, who's a murderer and, uh, and, and has taken several, several women to be his wife. But then we get the genealogy of Seth, which is where the image of God gets passed on all the way down to a new Lamech, to Noah, and then after the flood to Noah's sons. So chapter 10 is going to begin with the genealogies coming from Noah's sons. Then we get the Tower of Babel in in chapter 11. Here's what's happening. That's not chronological order. More than likely, the Tower City of Babel event takes place in the middle of that genealogy in chapter 10. I'm going to give you a few reasons why we believe that's true, just so you understand it's not necessarily unfolding in chronological order. Okay, So you get the the sons of Noah and their genealogies in chapter 10. So um, one of the guys who's going to come up is a guy named Nimrod. And uh, isn't that a great name, right? Uh, and if you're planning on calling your son or daughter Nimrod, please, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, but it's just not a, an endearing name in our culture and society. But evidently it was at this time to be called Nimrod. Matter of fact, he was uh, the first of the mighty men. He was a mighty hunter, a mighty warrior. Uh, he, was, he was evidently a very strong leader. But what we learn in chapter 10 is that Nimrod was one of the first to settle in that area where, where Babel is, in that, in that valley, those plains there, and he began to build great cities, okay? And so he's a descendant of Ham, one of Noah's sons, and we know that Ham, uh, Ham's descendants migrated and moved to northern Africa, Egypt, and really set up camp there. But along the way, you have this region known as the Babel area where, um, where the, the towers and the city episode is going to take place, Nimrod was the great leader. And we get that in, uh, in the genealogy of 10. Uh, so here are just a few verses. Um, so verse 8, chapter 10, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. So evidently it was pretty cool to be called Nimrod at this time. Uh, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom. Well, that's interesting. So God's building his kingdom here on earth. And now we got Nimrod, this mighty man, building his own kingdom. And look at this. The beginning of his kingdom was where? Babel. Okay, so the story we're going to read in 11, I believe, has a whole lot to do with this kingdom that Nimrod is setting up. 
And there's another reason why I think this is true, because if you'll keep reading the genealogies, you'll get it to a man named Eber. I don't know anybody named Eber. It's kind of a cool name, Eber. But in verse 25 of chapter 10, look at what it says. This is going to set us up for 11. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, and his days on earth, for in his days the earth was what? Divided. Again, a reference setting us up for what we're about to read in chapter 11. So here's, if you follow the genealogy, the great-grandson of Noah is Nimrod. And he's setting up this, his own kingdom here in Babel. Noah's great-great-grandson, the next generation, says that in his days, that people were divided. Okay, and so we kind of see how that's playing out in time frame. So now let's move forward to the event of Babel, which falls into that genealogy. So I just want to set us up to kind of understand. It's not in chronological order, and it can be confusing. All right, verse 1 of chapter 11. Let's start this together. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. So far, so good. Man was created to bear the image of God, living in community, which implies unity with one another, with the mission to do what? To multiply, to go out, to have dominion over the whole earth, to to literally surround the globe as image bearers of the king. So, so far, so good. They had one language, had the same words. Verse 2, and as the people migrated from the east, so far, so good, right? They're doing what God asked them to do. They're traveling, they're multiplying, they're setting out to conquer the the earth. But then we get to the end of verse 2. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now that little subtle detail is going to set up this whole story where man is now not just slightly beginning to deviate from God's plan, but to go in the exact opposite direction of what God gave man to do here on earth. Okay, so let's read into verse 3. Here's what they say to one another. So man is having a conversation. They say to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So man is beginning to be innovative, creative, um, ingenuitive, and they realize that, you know, they can take mud of a certain type form bricks and heat it up, and at the end process, they can have bricks. So man's beginning to get a little bit creative here, and we're going to see a little bit confident in his own ability to create. And so here's what, here's what it says. So we've discovered something. We can make our own bricks. This is the rest of three, and they had brick for stone. Simple phrase. You literally can read that brick instead of stone. So what Moses has described here is this. Stone comes from who? Who created stone? God. Who is the one creating these bricks? Man. So man is beginning to trade the things that God has made for things he's made himself, and he's beginning to trust in his own ingenuity. So they had bricks for stone and bitumen, which is this like asphalt tar stuff, for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now everything has gone wrong. 
This is a complete 180 degrees from what man was created to do. It's the antithesis, if you will, the complete opposite of what God created man to do. So let's unpack it. So man is growing more confident in his own ability. He's actually impressed with himself. So he has a conversation. Men have a conversation and go, hey, check this out. Look at what I've invented, right? So we get the axe handle. We get flint. We have all these inventions. And man is pretty impressed. Look at what I, I figured out how to make bricks, okay? We don't have to take stones and shape them anymore. We form them with our hands and we cook them. And listen, there's no end to the number of bricks we can make. Think about what we could do. But something else is going on here in that phrase that man is settling. Just think about that. If you're not going to settle, if you're going to obey God, you're going to be kind of a nomad. It's going to be inconvenient to be obedient to God, isn't it? I mean, just about the time you get comfortable, you figure out where the clean water is, where to go to hunt for food, right? How to build your shelter. It's time to pick up and keep moving. This is what God has commissioned man to do. Multiply and fill the earth. And so man has decided he has a better plan. Tell you what. I've got an idea. And you can almost see them drawing in the sand there with one another or talking about, what can we do with those bricks? Because like, if we start building something and then we move, we're gonna have to start over again. And we can't take those bricks with us. Hey, I got an idea. What if we, what if we built our own city? Like, think about that. You could spend two, three, four, five years building a home like you want it. I mean, you could make it two stories, Right? You could add on to the back and have a porch and you can have all, like think about it. And then when you die, you can pass that on to your kids. And we can build this big wall around our city so that we won't let anybody in that we don't want in. And this will be ours. We're gonna settle here. You see how much is packed into that little phrase? And not only that, in the middle of our city, we're gonna build a tower. And through building this tower, We're going to be able to reach up and literally have our own way to get to God. And we're going to make a name for who? Ourselves. Now, so much about this event has not changed in the heart of man. This template for building a city is still the same template we use today in our cities. Now, think about this. If you fly into DFW Airport, whether you come from the north or the south, whatever your approach is, You can usually look outside a window to your left and a window to your right and see the towering buildings of either downtown Dallas or downtown Fort Worth, right? You can tell where the cities are by the height of their towers, right? And you can even look to Arlington and see uh, Jerry's World, right? You go, okay, there's Arlington down there to the south. I can tell why, because I can see the stadiums. You can go to any city in the United States that's a major city and you'll find that it's identified by its towers, Seattle has the Space Needle. Uh, New York City, you've got you know, Statue of Liberty. You've got the Empire State Building. Does anybody remember when the Empire State Building was like the tallest thing on earth, it seemed like? Like when you thought about Superman leaping buildings in single bounds, like you thought of the Empire State Building. Like when I was a kid, we compared everything to the Empire State Building. It's not all that tall. I don't even know if it was the tallest back then, but it, it felt big to us as kids. But now you go to New York and they've got taller buildings, right? The, the whole 9-11 thing was was about tearing down our towers. You go to any major city in the world and it's identified, right? Its pride is in the height of its buildings. Think about that. Uh, So if you go to India, whether you go to uh, Rio de Janeiro, something is marked by its height. 
And we still do the same thing today. We build these big towers, and then what do we like to do at the top? Put our names on them. Whether it's a Chase Bank, whether it's, right? And so even our, like our sports arenas now, we sell the name to a company, and they become like Nokia Field or, right? I had a, a conversation with a friend of mine this past week, and we are talking about domain names and how all the dot-coms are just about done. And now there's a business to, uh, to rush in and scoop up all the dot-coms, the names, and then sell them for a markup. And there's a company he was telling me about. It's a, like a hardware store in Seattle that has the um, dot-com, I think it's truth.com. Don't hold me to that. It's something like that. And the, the domain name is worth more than the company. Yeah, because there's so much wrapped in, up in a name. And we are still a people who like to gather together, build big cities, and ultimately build a name for ourselves. This is true of our own lives. You know that, right? We're people who measure ourselves by our net assets. We, we mark our achievements by the home. We continue to upgrade to get to the home of our dreams. Same thing with cars. Some of us go out on a limb and buy things we can't afford because we're trying to create an image for ourselves, trying to build a name for ourselves. And so this template that we see in Genesis 11 is not just a singular event from human history. It's the mark of our rebellion against God. And there's unity here in what they're doing, right? So there's a warning to me. Just because we become unified as a church does not mean that we're unified in godliness. Just because we agree on the next big project, the next big plan, the next big venture, the next direction to go, just because we're unified, right, that doesn't necessarily mean we're after something godly here. What they're doing is they're distorting what God created in community and say, you know what, let's take this thing called community and let's build a name for ourselves now. And so it's not just diverted purpose of man, it's completely derailed and man is going 100% in the opposite direction from the God who created him. I love, uh, I love verse five. Um, scripture is so subtle in its wording. Um, so let's read it together. It, it, it continues to crack me up. So, uh, so keep in mind, man is building a tower to do what? To reach heaven. Look at verse, what verse five says. I love this. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. I think this is Moses' very subtle and almost humorous way of saying it was an utter failure. They were building a tower to get to God, right? And so God wanted to see it, so he didn't just look outside. What did he have to do? He had to come down. Now, for us, it's ridiculous because they were probably building a tower that was about 300 feet tall. We know that from other structures from this time period. We know that Nimrod and and the rest of Ham's descendants moved into northern Africa and Egypt, and they were notorious for building these big pyramids, these big towers that had divine meaning. So we know about the size of this structure. But keep in mind, man hasn't left the ground yet. No satellites, no airplanes, helicopters, not even the hang glider, right? So so for man, 300 feet, I mean, that's that's a big tower. But from God's perspective, he still has to come down. And so in that subtle phrase, Moses is saying, all of man's efforts were a complete, ridiculous, utter failure. So the Lord comes down. More evidence that I think this is still connected in introduction. You remember the the Trinitarian language God used in creation, let us make man in our image. He's talking of himself in plurality. Again, that shows up, verse 5. 
So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man have built. Actually, it's verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. God's speaking of his own plurality here. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So you've got God, the king of the universe. Man's building a 300-foot tower to try to impress the, the world, right? And even maybe try to impress God. See, God, we don't really need you. We can come up with our own bricks, our own mortar. Look at this. We can get to heaven on our own. And so God looks and says, oh, my goodness, I'm just so proud of you. Here, I'll tell you what. Watch this. I'll just confuse your language, and the whole thing's going to derail. I mean, God could have taken, right, uh, whatever he wanted, literally could have grabbed a star and went, thrown a meter at the earth and went, oh, what happened to your little building? So big now. Right? I mean, he could have said, you know what, that's a good place for a volcano. Here we go. Boom. You know, or how about an earthquake, huh? But, but he didn't. All, look, and you see what's happening just so subtly. God is revealing. Watch. You're, you're, not, you're not as cool as you think you are. And, and, and you're certainly not as independent as you're trying to portray to the world. You need me. Watch. Confuse the language. And the whole thing comes apart. And people disperse. So that's where the rest of 11 goes. Verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them there over the face of the earth. They left off building the city. God didn't take their bricks away. He didn't throw meteors at them. He just confused their language. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because the Lord confused the language of the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now we know um, that this Babel civilization, they dispersed um, but, began to, but gave rise to the Babylonians. It's, I don't think it's any accident that the people who continued this name continue to be people rebelling against God through the whole Old Testament. And then you get to Revelation 18 and 19 and what do you get? You get Babylonian called the great prostitute. And if she's officially defeated in Revelation 18 and 19. So, 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 so much about what's happening here, God's saying, this is preparing you to understand everything else that will happen in human history, including the end of all things. So now we turn our attention to the New Testament, right? So if this is Moses setting the pace for the rest of the story, this is gonna help us make sense then of what Jesus does, right? If Jesus is the climax of the story and him coming to earth, living a sinless life, dying on a cross, being in a grave for three days, resurrecting from the grave, and then ascending to heaven. If that, I mean, that's a big deal in the story, isn't it? Okay, so what does that have to do then with what we just read in Genesis 11? I'm glad you asked. All right, so here's where we're gonna go now. We're gonna go to the New Testament. You're gonna see two things. That, so what was accomplished um, on the cross? We call it the rescue mission. Two things were happening that are, not independent of one another. One, God is restoring community, okay? But in that process, he's restoring the individual, okay? Both are happening. We're a culture who likes the individual part of that story, and we tend to latch on. God's restoring me, God's fixing me, it's me and God against the rest of the world. But at the same time, God is restoring not just your relationship to him, your relationship in community with others, and the two, you can't separate. So we get to the New Testament, and what you're going to see remarkably is that nothing has changed. 
after Jesus resurrects from the dead, he commissions his disciples. And what does he commission them to do? Go. Does that sound familiar? God said go, multiply, fill the earth. Go now and make disciples of who? All nations. See, the, the, the mission hasn't changed. In Acts 1.8, we'll read in just a minute, that mission gets restated again. Go to the ends of the earth. In Acts 8.1, it actually starts to happen. And so you and I are on the same mission that we were created for in Genesis 1 and recommissioned for from Jesus in Matthew 28. The mission hasn't changed. Our purpose to bear God's image has not changed. Let's walk through a few things together. So Acts 1.8 is the launch of the church, God's kingdom here on earth. Okay? This is after... Uh, the resurrection. So here's what Jesus says in Acts 1.8. But you will re- receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Well, Jesus, how will we know? Will I just be inspired? Will there be any tangible evidence? Here's what he says. You will be, I love this. He's not saying, oh, and by the way, once you get the Holy Spirit, would you try to make time to do some things for me? I, I love how this is worded. You will receive the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and Samaria into what? The ends of the earth. See, the mission hasn't changed. Our created purpose to bear the image of God to all of creation, like I was thinking about this this week, even in the universe, like even in exploring the little bit of the universe we can get to and still return home alive, right? Like the moon, Mars, like... Everything about God allowing us to do that is to show God as the king of the universe to all the rest of creation. You see how we, we twist that, though, to our own glory, to our own sovereignty, to our own, the building of our own names? And so our purpose on earth, at your job, um, when you walk through a park, when you're driving down the road, conversations with your family, with your spouse, with your kids, your purpose is to bear the image of the king, and that hasn't changed. So here's what happens in Acts 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and he falls on the disciples. And it's, we won't read the whole thing, but it's really a cool story. And uh, there's such a rumbling that a crowd begins to gather. Like it's like so audible, the Holy Spirit of God falling on them, that a, a crowd begins to gather. And we're going to read in the text that it's actually a crowd from all different nationalities and ethnicities begin to gather in Jerusalem around this, this upper room where the Holy Spirit is rumbling the walls. So pick, we'll pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 2, Acts 2, 4. They, the disciples, were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus just said it's going to happen. They began to speak in, what? Other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there is, there is no coincidence to this. This is how God chooses to launch his kingdom. Remember what happened at Babel. Okay, just track with me. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Luke is writing this down. He wants us to understand something. There's something very significant about the people who are surrounding this event. And at the sound of the multitude, they came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his what? Own language. Um, So we could take a sidetrack here for a minute and talk about tongues. We won't go very far that way. For those who are 
hyper-conservative and think that the, the gift of tongues is dead. Um, tongues is a real thing that God does, speaking language and even um, other languages through people. Okay? But here we have just this beautiful explanation of why. Not that we need it or have to have it, but God's showing us. I, that the gift of tongues is a, a unifying gift. I think that's why Paul warns against it being, when it becomes divisive in the church, it's doing the opposite of what God intended to do. It, instead of like the Tower of Babel confusing language and everybody disperses, through tongues God is pulling together. So see what happens here. So each one was here speaking his own language. They were amazed, they were astonished, saying, are not all these people who are speaking Galileans? Verse eight, and how is it that we hear each one of us in his own language? And then verse 9 through like 10, you just get these people groups. These, so just so we understand, it wasn't just like a few dialects. I mean, these were foreigners. A lot of variation to the people who were here, hearing God speak in his own language. So here's what God is doing now in Acts 2. The Tower of Babel was about man collecting to build his own city, his own fortress, and ultimately his tower and his own identity. God himself now is standing in the center of his kingdom, and now he's the tower. And he's displaying this by speaking through his followers in such a way that everybody from all nations can understand. And he's drawing people now to himself. You see how this is the undoing of Genesis 11? And so now look at what says, if we pick it up in verse 11, both the Jews and the proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the what? The mighty works of God. So Tower of Babel was about man displaying his mighty works and building his own image and his own name. Now, in God's kingdom here on earth, the church, God is building his own glory, right? He's beginning to restore his image and his followers. Verse 12, they were amazed, perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And then others were mocking and said they were filled with new wine. So for some... They were really interested. What does this mean? And for others, they're like, these guys must be drunk. Didn't make sense, right? Unless you see the whole story. Now, in the rest of the New Testament, the New Testament serves as a beautiful commentary, explanation of the things that happen in the old. Um, really, I can't think of one book that doesn't somehow point to, not just back to Jesus, but even back to the Old Testament. Um, Romans is a beautiful place to go and to get an understanding of some of the things in the Old Testament. Hebrews, Ephesians, Galatians will be there next week. Galatians 4, looking back, 3 and 4, looking back on Genesis 12. I want to look at Ephesians with you for just a moment. Because Ephesians is a place where Paul really explains um, what happens at the cross and resurrection um, in, in, in reference to these things happening in the Old Testament. So in Ephesians 2.11, um, here's what Paul's going to refer to. Those who were the descendants of Abraham, okay, so we'll get to Abraham next week. The, all the descendants of Abraham are marked in a special covenant relationship with God by circumcision. So the children of Abraham were marked with circumcision. Everybody else on the earth was not. That's where you get this Jew-Gentile thing, okay? The in crowd, the outside crowd. And so this is where Paul picks up in Ephesians 2. He says, therefore remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Okay, that's a, that's a very fancy way of saying Paul's, you know, he does that. Um, it's a very philosophical way of saying, remember when you used to be not on the in crowd? Remember when you used to be on the outside looking in? And so when I hear him say that, like, I remember those days. I didn't come to the church until I was 15. 
I remember stepping in going, I'm kind of a fish out of water here. I don't really get these people. I don't know if you can remember that. Like, they dress a certain way. They, they use these words I'd never heard before. They sang songs, like, together. That was kind of weird. I was used to listening to somebody else up there. And, I, you know, I'm listening to him sing, and I hear somebody else. I'm like, would you be quiet? We're trying to hear this guy. And then I realized, whoa, everybody's singing these songs. It was weird. And everybody's saying, fine, fine. The word fine and the word just just got used all the time. God, we just come to you today. We're just so excited. How you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. Fine. Like, it was just this weird use of language. I didn't get it. I was a fish out of water. Paul is saying with, with really big, heady, theological terms, remember when you were a fish out of water in the church? You didn't fit in? Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So the reason you felt like that wasn't because you didn't have the clothes and the lingo. It's because you were separated from Christ. Like I would even say that for some of us here maybe you're still at that place where like the church just still seems a little bit weird. Now we are weird. We're pretty weird. But that begins and it's rooted in not knowing Christ. You're separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. 13, this is beautiful. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Does that speak to anybody? I mean, some of you may have been born in church. I wasn't. So that's, you're like, I've always been. But for me, I'm like, oh, yeah, far off, long ways off. And so what Paul is saying is that through the blood of Christ, now I have been brought near. For he himself is our peace. I love how Ken brought that up from Habakkuk and he prayed that. God, even if the, if the field's not yielding crops and the world's falling apart, I don't have anything to eat, still I will say, God, you are good. I love that. That he himself is our peace, not his stuff. He has made us both one. Now that's a big us. Do you understand the us there? That us is every person on the face of the planet, every ethnicity, every social class, okay? Not just us, it applies to us. We'll talk about that in just a second, but that's a big us. So God has done something individually for me. He brought me near to himself in my salvation. But then when I got to God, I looked and there you were. He's bringing us together in real community. Um, Look at verse 17. Uh, He came and he preached peace to you and to me who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Now that's the corporate thing that God is doing. But then if we keep reading in Ephesians, you're going to get to Ephesians 4, um, this beautiful passage in 4, 1 through 6, talks about how um, be eager now to maintain that unity. You may be familiar with that verse. God's given you unity as the church. Now you just maintain it. Be eager to maintain it. He says do this way. With humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. You know why we have to have those things for each other? Because we require those things from each other. You need to have patience to be in relationship with me because I'm going to require your patience. Like Overstating the simple, right? I need you to, to be prepared to bear one another with one another in love. Why? Because we're going to test one another. There, it's, it, there's going to be a sense of, 
we're just really different here. And so God tells us, be eager to maintain this unity because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God is restoring what came undone in the fall from Genesis 3 through 11. That unfolding, that tearing apart, that fracturing, the distortion of your intended purpose, mission, and identity. God is restoring all that in Jesus. You just keep reading Ephesians 4. Look at verse um, 21. Let's pick it up the end of 21. As the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to the, your former manner of life. Well, what was so bad about my former manner of life? I'll tell you what it was. It was corrupt through deceitful desires. That's the Tower of Babel crew, right? Corrupt, deceitful desires. Verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, look at this, created after the what? Likeness of God. Christ is restoring in you everything God created you to be in Genesis 1. Yeah, everything. Paul says it in Colossians this way, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creation. I'm sorry, of its creator. So God, like Jesus is continually restoring this image of the creator in me. Um, in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. I'll, so Paul is, remember, I mean, he's a, he's a very educated guy. He's gonna use the word citizenship. Your citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. Think about this. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's Paul describing your image being renewed back into the image of the creator. I love that. And, uh, and so if, if Paul is kind of the brainiac, the theologue head, the, the guy who just likes to talk with big words, then John the apostle was like grandpa. I love how John says the same thing. First John chapter three, verse 20, uh, verse two John says this, beloved, so instead of saying we're citizens, he says it this way. Beloved, we are God's children now. What a beautiful phrase. God has reconciled you to himself. But in reconciling you and reconciling me, he called us together. Not just inhabitants to live in the same land, but brothers and sisters of the same family. He's restoring community. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when we appear, we shall be like him. And we shall see him as he is. Praise God. So your God-given purpose to bear the image of the king to all creation has not changed. Matter of fact, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's restoring that in you. He's conforming you into the image of his son. When people look at you, they see God. Your mission hasn't changed. Multiply, carry God's kingdom around this whole earth, reflecting the glory of the king. I mean, not just to the people, reflect it to the rocks, right? Reflect God's glory to everything God has given you to steward. And my dog will never get it, but I'm to reflect the glory of the king to my dog, The mission hasn't changed. 
And for God's sake, our relationship and community has not changed. You, you can't be restored to Christ without being restored to Christ's family. Now, for us then, let me just share then some snapshots of how this plays out for us as a church. Because right now, I'm incredibly encouraged with Solid Rock. I'm not saying we're there yet, okay? But I love watching God transform us. So here's some examples. The Super Bowl party for the homeless. Um, Some of you uh, went. Um, Much more of you went than I thought were gonna go. And I didn't didn't get to go. Um, Evidently, it's hard to find a sitter during the Super Bowl. Um, But Hallie got to go. And she went and spent some time with some of you and and served alongside you and came back just really moved. Like, one thing she said, I could do this once a month. It was awesome. So I just kind of had to learn about it through you. And I saw the pictures on Facebook. And I love that um, some of the pictures, they were, I was bringing them up. And I was having a hard time telling where the volunteers were and where the homeless people were. Like it didn't stick out to me. Oh, there's the Solid Rock folks and here's all the poor homeless people. Now here's why that's important. God hasn't called us to be sympathetic to the homeless. He hasn't caused us to be just gracious and generous. He's called us to be in community with the least of these. Twice the disciples are having an argument in the Gospel of Luke about who the greatest person is in the kingdom. And both times, both times Jesus interjects and says, listen, you want to know who the greatest is? And he pulls a kid over to himself and says, the least That's the economy of my kingdom. This idea from Babel that's just played out through human history that you need to make a great name for yourself and to be the greatest, you need to be able to climb to the top. That's the opposite of my kingdom. You want to be successful in my kingdom? Be broken and be humble. Be honest with your weakness. When you collect yourselves together, instead of boasting about how great you are, and how great your week has been and how awesome all the things you've accomplished, how about you come together and you share your weaknesses with one another? You share your failures and your sin and say, listen, this is where I'm still weak. And God said, I can use that. I will use that to build my kingdom. Praise God. Praise God. Hmm. So for you today, I want to I leave you with a lot to think of, Hopefully. Now this series, we're going to walk all this out as the story continues starting next week. Okay, in Genesis 12, the rescue mission begins all the way back then. It's beautiful. But I want to leave you with those thoughts to really take some inventory. Now, I, I can't answer the question for you. Are, are you still building your own kingdom? Are you still living for your own glory and your own name's sake? I can't answer that for you, but I can invite you to ask the question. So I'm gonna leave you with that thought and I'm gonna pray for you and invite our worship team to come back up as we get ready to respond to God. So just take a second right now to think about that that question. If the true heart motives of your life were exposed today, Would it be that most of what you do right now in life, talking about your ambitions, is about living for yourself, your own kingdom, your own glory? Or have you gotten to a place in your life where you truly have 
submitted those things to God and said, God, I'm tired of chasing after my own idols. I'm ready to chase after you. If you have not gotten to that point, I wanna invite you this morning to the place in life where you lay down chasing after yourself and begin a relationship with the king of the universe. And so God says this, if you wanna be in my kingdom, you don't have to submit an application, you don't have to go to class, you don't have to pass a test, you don't have to wear the right clothes, you don't have to come up with the right lingo. If you wanna be in my kingdom, you need to believe my son. This morning, God is inviting you into the story. And he's saying to you, believe in my son, Jesus. He came to die for your sins, to take your sins to the grave and to leave them there. To unshackle you from shame and guilt and bondage and to restore your God-given purpose and mission and community. God, I pray for anybody here today who is wrestling with that decision to leave behind a world of living for themselves and to begin today living for you. I wanna pray for that person, God. However you want it to happen, if that's getting up out of their chair and coming down, that's fine. If it's sitting right where they're at, if it's going to the back and praying with one of our prayer partners. But God, in this very room, in this very moment, Lord Jesus, you would call that person, literally reach out your hand and usher them into your kingdom. God, a kingdom where you are making all things new. So God, come move among us now, we pray in Jesus' name.